You're listening to the Monumental Me Mindshare Podcast. We're collecting stories and having conversations with real people who inspire us to thrive in life. Thinkers and doers and people like you. This is Liana Slater of Monumental Me. Today, we are inviting you to sit down with Dr. Robert E. Quinn, a world-famous professor on the topics of purpose, leadership, culture, and change. Dr. Quinn is a professor emeritus at the University of Michigan, Ross School of Business. He is one of the co-founders for the Center of Positive Organizations, and he is cited in the top 1% of professors in organizational behavior in textbooks and writings. He's also published 18 books, and most famous include Deep Change, The Best Teacher in You, and The Economics of Higher Purpose. Right up our alley for Monumental Me Mindshare. So thanks for joining us, and this is really a treat. The story says, Knowing your highest purpose and organizing your life to it really, really makes a difference. Now the question is, is it true? Well, there's a long list of studies, and the list continues to grow, about personal purpose. People who live their lives to a higher purpose live longer. They're less likely to have Alzheimer's, less likely to have heart attack or stroke. They have better immune systems. They have better social relationships. They have better intimate relationships. They make more money. The list goes on and on and on. And when I read that list of scientific findings, I say to myself, what is this list saying to me? And what the list is saying to me is that human beings are designed to be purpose-seeking mechanisms. When they clarify and live their purpose, they have a different quality of life. Instead of surviving, they flourish. Dr. Quinn, I shared a quote from you when we first introduced Monumental Me to the internet world just a couple of months ago. And I shared a quote where you said the most dangerous place on earth, our comfort zone. So I'd love for you to talk about the concept behind that. I think that that concept is very important. I'm impressed that you picked up on it so strongly. In about 1990, I wrote a book called Deep Change. And the entire thesis of that book was one sentence, deep change or slow death. And the, the suggestion is that for individuals, teams, groups, organizations, there's a constant call for you and I to change. It, it can be in the physical realm. My conscience may say, you need to lose weight. And I usually don't want to listen to that. It could be in the social realm. You need to exert yourself more and create more meaningful relationships. Man, that sounds like hard work. It can be in the intellectual realm. You need to do more learning. Uh, That's hard work. It could be in the spiritual realm. You need to move to a higher level of consciousness and awareness. Uh, That is terrible work, right? But when we reject 
those calls individually or collectively. Organizations reject them constantly. There are signals that come in that the hierarchy needs to change. And invariably, the reaction is to neutralize those signals. And when we do not respond, we go into the dynamic of slow death. And slow death at first doesn't matter very much. As you continue down the path long enough, it starts to matter more. And then then a transformation occurs and slow death becomes fast death. And you go into crisis. And you end up on the couch of the psych, psychologist, and you are lost. You're disempowered. You're wandering in the wilderness. And people spend a lot of time on the path to slow death. They're trying to stay in their comfort zone. Now, another way to say it is that knowledge is the child of learning, but it's a very ungrateful child because knowledge hates learning. And today we see that an enormous amount of research on the confirmation bias. We do not want our beliefs challenged because we don't want to think deeply because deep thinking deeply consumes lots of glucose. It's hard, hard work. We'd rather dig ditches than think deeply. So the comfort zone is a very dangerous place. It's very easy for the comfort zone to become the window to slow death, and slow death has serious consequences. And that's a powerful phrase, the slow death. Is that a motivator when people realize that, when they hear that phrase, how do people get motivated to push themselves out of their comfort zone and create change? Well, when people are wandering in the wilderness, when they're losing energy, Usually one of two things happens. One, they go into crisis. And when you go into crisis, it forces you to reflect on the issues of identity and destiny. We don't want to do that in and of ourselves, but crisis forces it. And often crisis leads to a personal transformation. And suddenly, because we're forced to think about these things, we finally clarify our identity and destiny. We clarify our purpose. The moment that happens, we transform. We have a second birth. When I listen to you talk about your passion project, you radiate energy. I can feel the energy. It comes into me as you talk about it. You had a moment in your life where you said, whoa, here's one of the reasons I'm on this planet. And the moment you clarified that, everything changed. You were living now from intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation. We grow up totally focused on extrinsic motivation. We are determined by the external world. We have an external locus of control. At that moment of rebirth, you suddenly start operating from the inside out rather than the outside in. And when you do, everything changes and your influence increases and you're living your life differently now than you did prior to those moments. And so we, we make this change. We leave the comfort zone for one of two reasons. One, we're pushed out by crisis. Or two, we discover a purpose 
and we begin to pursue it. And both of those come by reflection. Crisis itself is forced reflection. And we know that people don't like to reflect. There was a study done a while ago where people were asked, you can spend 15 minutes in a quiet room reflecting, or you can have a mild electric shock. Most people picked the mild electric shock. Um, the notion of reflection is very, very difficult to embrace. We were speaking before about um, I touched on immersive learning when I was working with, with an executive education firm. And part of that was taking time to reflect on what one learned. But it really was a struggle for some people. But after you go through that, it was helpful. And that helps learning stick. But you know the science behind what you're speaking about. If you could talk a little bit more about that, that would be super helpful, that forced reflection. And, and why, why is the brain, why does, why does the brain, you know, reject that? <laughs> Um, you know, I think there are five levels that help me think about that. The first level is logic. You and I have logical minds. The moment any of our expectations are violated, your partner says something you don't like, your boss asks you to do a task that you didn't expect to do, uh, a letter comes saying that one of your accounts is out of balance, any disruption of your expectations, you immediately go into logical problem solving. And when it's a simple, straightforward, incremental challenge, logical problem solving is great. When you run into a more complex problem, one that involves organic dynamics, it can get much more difficult. This is what Einstein was talking about when he said you can't solve certain kinds of problems at the same level of logic in which they were created. And you have to go to a second level. You have to go to the imagination. We talk about vision. The moment your consciousness changes and you see something from a new perspective, you're still using your logical mind, but now everything makes sense because your assumptions have changed. Now, in that process of churning, rumination, wrestling with our problems in life, uh, the brain does work in a certain way. Our brain fills with cortisol. We are hypersensitive to threat. We constantly go into fight or flight. And attention narrows. You can usually see only one option. And uh, one option may be very costly and cause you all kinds of difficulty, but your attention narrows. And we all do this, every single one of us. And we do it constantly, all day long. At work, we're constantly scanning for threat. At home, we're constantly scanning for threat. And when those disruptions come, we go into that, that state of being. And over long periods of time, it's very costly. We have piles of research that show the price we pay for being in those high states of stress and anxiety. We are learning just so much from research these days about how to manage that process, how to elevate ourselves above that. I listened to a man uh, who was a speaker at a conference where I was the other keynote speaker. And 
He's a, a world's expert on transcendental medi meditation and increasing consciousness. And he said one sentence that I thought was just wonderful. He said, reflection, and more particularly meditation, mindfulness, is the cleansing of the nervous system. And I love that statement because that's exactly right. It's moving us from fight or flight to the highest level of functioning in which we can listen, we can hear, we can connect, we can function, we can see alternatives. And when we spend time at that level, the life outcomes are very, very different. And I see purpose as one of the keys that we can use to be at that highest level of functioning. So purpose, stepping back a minute, your Google talk was how to live a purpose-driven life, and it was viewed by over 15 million people. So clearly, this is a hot topic that resonates, and you speak in that talk about the science behind the value of a purpose-driven life. So you just touched on that. I would love to hear more um, about why you think that was such a popular talk. And just as we've come out of this most recent crisis of the pandemic, we see the light at the end of the tunnel right here, especially in the U.S. Everybody's been pushed out of their comfort zone. So this is a great, perfect example of crisis and disruption. But but let's talk about how purpose can help people make the transitions that need to be made right now. How can purpose help people come out of this recent crisis is my question. There's so much to be said about that. I just yeah. <laughs> published a book called The Economics of Higher Purpose with my yes. co-author, Anjan Thacker. In the first part of that book, we talk about personal purpose. And then in the latter part, we talk about creating organizations of higher purpose and the enormous payoffs. Let me just dwell on the personal level for just a second and, and maybe do two things. Let me tell you a personal story that I think helps us understand, and I'll just share a little bit of research. My daughter was getting older, and she wasn't married, and it was starting to become an issue with her. And she, because she was older, she was coming to this terrible conclusion there were no decent male human beings on the earth that were left. And she was really starting to struggle. And then she met this guy that she was very excited about, and bells started ringing, life was good. And about three months later, I walked into my wife's study, she was on the phone, and it was crystal clear what was going on at the other end. It was my daughter, and this guy had just dumped her. And she was pretty upset. Now, this is our firstborn child, and when firstborn children are upset, they tend to have a common tendency. They want you to be miserable with them. And she announced, I'm coming home this weekend. And I thought, oh, no. And my wife said, you're the father. You go to the airport and pick her up. So she got in the car, and she didn't say hello. She said, that no good, dirty, da-da-da. And for five minutes, she went on. When she took a breath, I finally said, are you problem-solving or purpose-finding? She didn't even hear me. And that repeated three times. By the time we were pulling in the driveway, she took another breath, and I said, are you problem-solving or purpose-finding? She paused. She looked at me. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I sent that letter to your brother last week about purpose-finding, and I sent you a cut. She said, this is the real world. <laughs> And so by then we're in the house and I pulled a sheet of paper out of my file and it said Robert Quinn life statement. 
and I handed it to her. She ripped it out of my hand. She started to read, and then she got very quiet. And she looked up, and she said, when you feel bad, you read this? And I said, no. When I feel bad, I rewrite it. It's been rewritten hundreds of times. She said, yeah, I can hardly understand some of this stuff. And then the first miracle occurred. She said, do you think I could write one of these? And I said, I am absolutely sure that you could. And the miracle was that she disappeared for a day and a half into a bedroom, and she wrote a life statement, and we didn't have to suffer. Um, she went back to where she lived, and a couple of days later, she sent an email. And she said, he called me. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. She said, after I talked to him on the phone, I wrote him a letter. Here's the letter. So I read the letter, and it was an amazing letter. It was authentic. It was vulnerable. It was just stunning. And then she said in, in the email, but my roommates said, I can't share this with him. Now, we might just pause for a second and say, why would the roommate say that? Well, it's very clear. Dating is a transactional marketplace. Dating is like a business, right? It's driven by exchange theory. And they're saying, hey, you need to know, need to know the rules of the game. You don't share something like that with some guy that just dumped, dumped you. Now, here's the stunning, miraculous statement that then followed. She said, what my roommates don't understand is that what he thinks doesn't matter. Now, three days ago, what he thought caused her life to shatter. Now she's saying what he thinks doesn't matter. Now, what's she doing? She's leaving transactional theory, the theory that governs our lives, it governs business, it governs all of society. And she's going inside. She's becoming internally directed. She's living from her most authentic identity and her high, highest purpose. And she's saying, what other people think, it's important, you need to be sensitive, but it doesn't determine who you are. Your purpose determines who you are. Now, here's the interesting side note to that story. She was a first-line employee. Suddenly, she was promoted into a leadership position. What does that have to do with the story? Because we think business is out there and family life or dating and personal life is here. Two separate worlds. That, of course, is a myth. There's one you, and you live in all those worlds. Now, she was going to work. She had the same body. She was wearing the same clothes. But she wasn't the same person. She was so much more valuable to that company than the other person. Because she was now a leader. And organizations need leaders. And they have managers, but they need leaders. And there's a difference. And so, you know, the, the story says knowing your highest purpose and organizing your life to it really, really makes a difference. Now, the question is, is it true? Well, there's a long list of studies, and the list continues to grow, about 
personal purpose. People who live their lives to a higher purpose live longer. They're less likely to have Alzheimer's, less likely to have heart attack or stroke. They have better immune systems. They have better social relationships. They have better intimate relationships. They make more money. The list goes on and on and on. And when I read that list of scientific findings, I say to myself, what is this list saying to me? And what the list is saying to me is that human beings are designed to be purpose-seeking mechanisms. When they clarify and live their purpose, they have a different quality of life. Instead of surviving, they flourish. But people are also designed to survive and to live in fear. That's where almost all of us are all the time. People who have strong egos say, not me, I'm not fearful. But, it does, but the statement doesn't reflect the reality of their life. When you suddenly embraced the service of women in your life, you made that big shift that we talked about. You're not the same person you were before. And you're reaping benefits that may not be particularly visible, but are enormously consequential. So personal purpose really matters, whether you experience it individually as an emotional reality, or whether you look at science, which clearly verifies that it's true. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear the science and studies that are behind it, just to, for anybody who needs convincing. <laughs> Even though I've been convinced for a long time, because I feel, I feel what you just said, like when I found my purpose of helping women and elevate women. Yes, that's definitely energizing. But what if you hear people say, I, I don't know my purpose? So I know you talked about your daughter sat down and she wrote this life statement. You shared an example with her, but what, what would you tell somebody who said that to you? I don't know what my purpose is. How do I even start? Everybody says that to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of time working with very senior executives from big companies. So these are highly educated, very intelligent, high paid people with lots of responsibility. For every hundred of them, when I start talking about this, they start squirming. 90 of them have no idea what their purpose is. 10 of them do. And so we begin working on it. And it starts with a very simple act. I give them 90 seconds to write their life purpose. Now, it's very painful for them because they struggle to know what to write. The words they produce are not their purpose. But I tell them that doesn't matter. The, the words you wrote in those 90 seconds are really important. They're your first draft. And now you can spend some time every day looking at the draft and rewriting it every day. Now, one of the things that does, it begins to sensitize you to the question you can begin to look at your life experiences differently. You can begin to ask questions. What were the 10 best things that ever happened to me? What were the 10 worst things that ever happened to me? If I now examine those 20 things 
and see them as my life board of directors. What has life prepared me to do that's uniquely me? Now that transforms all your bad things into teachers, transforms all your good things into teachers. That's one of maybe 20 exercises that we suggest to people to begin on that question of reflection. Picasso said, the two most important days of your life is the day you discover your gifts And the second is the day you determine to give your gifts away. Now, that's a really powerful statement. You see, living with purpose is not about acquiring resources. It's not about getting rich. It's not about getting famous. It's not about getting powerful. You're transcending the ego. It's about contribution. It's about making the planet a better place in some form or fashion. It's you giving away your authentic self. That's way outside what you learn to do as a teenager and what the corporation is teaching you to do and what life is teaching you to do. But it's a very, very powerful place to be. Absolutely. And so each individual should strive to be a teacher. Is that the idea? So it's, you know, giving your knowledge away or self-discovery away. Well, that's not a bad thing to pop into your mind because it captures that notion of giving away. For example, um, if you read Oprah's life statement, she says, I'm a teacher. Now, I often show that to people. And I say, what bothers you about this? And they say, she was a talk show host. Mm -hmm. And yet the statement's all about, I'm a teacher who grows people and da-da-da. Well, how did there's a lot of talk show hosts? Why is it that she has her own network now? Why was she on the cover of Time Magazine? Why was she named the most influential woman in the world? Well, we can go back and trace the steps. Yeah, she's a talk show host, but she's feeling the needs of her people, the women on that listen to her show. So she says, I think I'll start a book club. I think I'll start. In time after time, she's doing things what? To grow the people. And the people love her. And she keeps growing them. And pretty soon she owns her own network. Pretty soon she's the most influential woman in the world. And it all starts with a very strange statement. I'm a a teacher. Right? Now, everybody's going to have a unique statement. They're not going to say I'm a teacher. Everybody has to find their unique statement. But it is about contribution. And that violates exchange theory, transactional theory, theories of justice, right? The ones that when we're disrupted, we get angry and we're going to fight or flight. Purpose pulls us into a higher level. So if we go back to the levels of being, we get logic. The next higher level is imagination. The next level is ego or conscience. That is, if you're in the natural state, ego governs logic and imagination. At the third level, if you transcend ego, now conscience drives logic and imagination. The moment that happens, you become contributive. You orient to the common good of the relationship. 
So now you're initiating new kinds of behaviors. Your work in trying to help women is very different than the behaviors that you were exhibiting prior to that. Mm. So you're initiating cycles of contributive action. Now you can do that and be oblivious, or you can do that and pay attention. If you pay attention to initiating cycles of contributive behavior, you're now able to do something few people ever do in life. You begin to learn from social excellence, from people at their best. And as you do that, you awaken your consciousness and you begin to tap something that's already in you, but almost inaccessible. It's your internalized theory of social excellence. The moment you begin to do that, you begin to lead. Managers making lots of money are not leaders. Position doesn't make you a leader. You become a leader when you embrace the authentic self, you look at the common good, and you inspire people to unify and animate around that common good. There are a lot of CEOs who are not leaders. Hierarchical position does not make you a leader. It makes you a manager, and you may or may not be a leader. Well, you're leading people, and they're responding to you because they know you have their good at heart, and you're trying to help them. So there's a strong tie, I think, between purpose and human influence. You touched on what is so important to me and, and monumental to me and, and my partner, Michelle, is influence and that peer-to-peer -peer support. <laughs> so that's so important. And yeah, it's interesting. And, and Oprah, yes, I think Oprah is such an, uh, a motivator, but she also is a lifelong learner. So she, it's interesting that she starts her statement that she's a teacher, but she is clearly just, you know, what she presents to the world and her followers. She's obviously excited about it. And, and when somebody inspires her. But and then you, when you mention her book club, that's I, I come back to that idea of a book club for women because it can be so much more than just discussing some a wonderful discovery in a book. It's also just that human connection. I don't make the gender differentiation. I know that there are different experiences, but I constantly encounter hierarchical helplessness, and it's populated by by maybe more men than women because there's simply more men. But people in hierarchies at all levels are terrified. They're terrified of being marginalized, experiencing social death. It's more terrifying to them than physical death. And it governs everything that happens in organizations. And you know, I want to weave, you know, kind of pause here and weave into a sentence you just uttered a minute ago, but I think it has to be addressed. You said, yeah, being a teacher versus being a, le a learner. You, know, you said uh, Oprah was a learner. Well, you know, I've done some research on teachers. Teachers, like executives, learn enough to survive in their job, and then they quit learning. I, a friend told me he listened to a talk by Carol Dweck lately, recently, about the learning uh, mindset, the growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And she said that she went into a school and she was talking to some teachers and she suddenly had a realization. Many teachers talk about the growth mindset 
from the fixed mindset. They live in the fixed mindset while they advocate the growth mindset. Well, that applies to executives, senior most executives. It applies to low-level managers. It applies to employees. That's slow death. That's the comfort zone. We go there because it's comfortable and because we want to be comfortable. Um, and so I think look at the great teachers. They're all continuing to learn. Look at the typical teachers, and they're not doing much learning. Right? They're in the expert. I think the first thing to recognize is the deep change or slow death dilemma applies to all people at all times. You're not alone. And if you talk to some other people on some kind of help group, you quickly become aware of that. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is not, oh, well, someone please give me a job because I'm worthless. I think the second thing is, who am I? What's my highest purpose? What are my gifts? It's a shift from fearful negotiation and probable failure to seeing some value in myself. It's stepping into purpose. It's stepping into integrity, empathy, and humility. And that's a very basic life change. Most people don't make it. But if you were sitting next to me and you were a woman who had been, let's say, a mother and a wife for 20 years and you were now, those are the kinds of things that I'd explore with you. I'd ask you questions to explore and bring out your best self. I would try to build your confidence that you had value and then tie that to the notion of contribution. If we made that jump and you got an interview for a job, I guarantee you, you'll do far better in that interview than the woman who goes to that job full of fear, which is the way most people go to job interviews. Definitely. So there's a lot we could delve into specifics, but that's a general answer. Super helpful. And I know we need to wrap up soon. I so appreciate all that you have said and a lot to reflect on. <laughs> I have one wrap-up question for you that I like to kind of end um, my talks with, but I don't know if there's anything really briefly that you want to add. I mean, you've said so much, so you don't feel the pressure, but I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of resilience and the inner strengths that we always talk about. I think just a kind of closing thought. There's some research that we're doing right now. It's very preliminary, hasn't been published. And I only saw the result two weeks ago, but it was really interesting to me. It showed a path diagram ending with the variable of resilience. Now, resilience is what uh, Duckworth talks about as grit. In her book, she argues, grit is the strongest predictor of success in life. So resilience, the ability to hang in there and pursue a purpose, is the strongest predictor. Not grades, not social economic status, it's grit. Now, the question is, what predicts grit? Now, very interesting set of findings. The variable higher purpose, knowing your higher purpose, is significantly connected to grit, but it's a weak significant correlation. Higher purpose is strongly correlated to something called self regulation, emotional self-regulation. And then emotional self-regulation 
is strongly related to grit. Now that's very interesting. If I have a purpose in life, I am much more likely to do emotional self-regulation. That is to self-elevate, to step from cortisol to oxytocin, to be at the highest level of consciousness. I may use any of a hundred tools to get there, but I'm much more likely to do it. If I do not have a purpose, I just react and live in fear. Now, if I'm emotionally self-regulating, I am far more likely to be resilient, to pursue and persist my pur- after my purpose. That, to me, is a very interesting new finding. And if it holds up, which I think it will, it's telling us the importance and the relationship between purpose, emotional self-regulation, and resilience. And that takes me back to my earlier statement. When I look at all the findings, all the positive outcomes from having a purpose-driven life, you and I are designed by nature to be purpose-driven people. Many, many people are not because they're trapped in another part of the design, and that is the design to survive and to live in fear. I can't think of any more important work for you and I to be doing than the work we're talking about right now. And the notion of you doing these podcasts for people and making uh, and bringing them these kinds of messages inspires me. I'm grateful that you're there doing this work because it's really important. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. So my last question, you are very busy, very accomplished, but I also think it's super important to, to be able to take time for oneself. And I'd like to ask you kind of how you fill your cup. <laughs> how do you keep yourself going and what do you do for yourself um, to, to be able to do that? That is a crucial, crucial question. And if, you, and if you're purpose-driven, then you do take care of yourself. You take care of everybody and you take care of yourself because if you're pursuing the common good, it's everyone's good. And you invariably have disciplines for emotional self-regulation. I write in my gratitude journal every morning. I do that. uh, It absolutely changes my life. I recognize the need to emotionally self-regulate before important interactions. And so I have four questions that I ask myself that always transform me. I have my life statement. When I'm really dragging, I get it out and I rewrite it. Well, I'm clarifying my purpose and values when I do that. I take time for recreation. I get out on the golf course when they don't have enough time for that, we know scientifically that just being outdoors, being in nature for very short periods of time has a very potent effect. And so there's a long list of things that I do. And people say, but I don't have time. That's fair, but you're also in slow death. Mm-hmm. It's not until you transcend that trick that the world plays on you, that you don't have time, 
and that you take care of yourself, that you have the ability to begin to flourish. And so your question is a crucial question, and everybody needs to have an answer to that. Absolutely. Well, you've just inspired me to do my gratitude journal in the morning because I am so inconsistent with the gratitude journal, but I was doing it at night. (laughs) So actually, you've just inspired me to do it in the morning where it's just part of my routine. As I write another thing, it needs to be every morning. So thank you. (laughs) Well, I'm delighted. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I truly, truly appreciate it. All right. Well, I wish you the very best in this important endeavor. Thank you. For more information or to join our community, visit our website at monumentalme.com or follow us on Instagram at monumentalme.we. And if you have any suggestions for interviews, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at monumentalme.com. Thank you.